turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. What does 1886 have to do with Israel in 2020? We'll soon find out. Dr. Michael Oren joins me, historian extraordinaire, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, former deputy minister, and now our uh, weekly correspondent from Jerusalem. Good morning, Dr. Oren. It's great to have you as always. Lovely to be here as always. Now, you're a historian before you were a uh, politician and a warrior. You're a historian. And uh, you will know Churchill's history writ large in the Middle East. You wrote a book about that. So you know that Winston Churchill had quite a lot to do with the Middle East, right? It did indeed. He, he is sort of the, the map maper of the Middle East. You uh, can't understand the map of the Middle East without understanding Winston Churchill. Yeah, see, he wrote it. He drew it. And his dad was named Lord Randolph Churchill, and his dad quit as the Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1886, daring Lord Salisbury to replace him, and Lord Salisbury replaced him. Now, the reason I bring that up is Sajid Javid quit, and Boris Johnson replaced him. And that tells us a lot about prime ministers. There's only one at a time. What's it tell us about Benjamin Netanyahu, if anything, Michael Oren? <laughs> it's a little bit different system, but uh, it's interesting to note that Lord Salisbury was what you call a Zionist, you. He was he was an outspoken supporter of the notion of, of recreating a, a Jewish home uh, in the historic homeland, the land of Israel. I so didn't know it, that. It was, it was a good move for us. Salisbury was actually authored the term, the phrase that is often attributed to Jewish Zionists, but he actually said it, and it was the phrase was, a land for a people, for a people without a land, because Palestine was notoriously and depopulated in the 19th century. Read any travelogue. Read Mark Twain. I'll tell you how there were no people in Palestine. It was amazing. And uh, here was a people without a land. The Jews for a land without a people. Wow. And it remains the slogan to the day that the Palestinians hate, but it was Lord Salisbury. Well, now, let's go back to the prime minister, because while Boris Johnson reshuffles everything, there is a reshuffling underway that will culminate next month in the elections. And we talk about it every week, and we have to because America's interested. I see in my Times of Israel that David Lieberman appears ready to drop a unity coalition demand. That means he's a man of the left now, right? (laughs) This is the man who keeps on refashioning himself. It's extraordinary. You know, I know you read that article I published in The Atlantic a couple of months back about Lieberman. He's the the prince of our paradoxes, a man who has held every single senior position in the state of Israel, except for the prime ministership, has resigned from all of them and has gone up in the polls. Who does that? Yeah. And he shifts. He finds a new new cause every time. One time he's against the Arabs. The other time he's against the the ultra-Orthodox. Now, in the basis of his anti-Orthodox stand, he wants to realign himself away from the right and with the left. Now, that could be uh, a shaker-upper. That's the big difference between us and the British government. The British government actually has a government. Israel does not yet. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) we look upon all these governments with envy. Um, It could be be the game-changer, the game-breaker. 
Um, nobody is tremendously op- uh, optimistic right now. The two blocks, the right center block and the center, center block, are exactly neck and neck tied. Now, when you say it could be a game breaker, uh, I'd like you to expound on that, because I looked at this and I said to myself, hmm, I wonder if the center right says we really have got to give Netanyahu a mandate because we do not want these left wing crazies in the government. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's not an American expression, but the British would say it's a cat and the pigeons. You know that one? No. Uh, A cat and the pigeons is a Trump peace plan. Ah. It's the pigeons flying everywhere. So you have this strange situation in, in, in Israel League politics where both the radical right and the radical left reject the Trump peace plan. The, and, and the left because it doesn't give enough to the Palestinians, and the right because it gives too much to the Palestinians. Now that is a, a cat in the pigeons. Now was, well, my long-term hope was that this Trump peace plan would bring the center together, would bring Benny DeGans and... Yes, and you've said that many times, yeah. Yes, and I, I still hope it um, because, you know, it, 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 it is, I think it's an excellent plan. It's the best plan I've ever seen. I've been involved in this peacemaking game for close to 30 years. It's the best I've ever seen, the closest that reflects reality. Um, and again, and BB understands that. There is this minor issue of BB's uh, legal woes. And if somehow they, the Benny Gans and his people can get over that hurdle and, and put it aside, uh, we have a chance of actually implementing this thing. I hope that will be the case. Now, the Jerusalem District Court announced a, tra- uh, a panel of three judges who are going to hear the Netanyahu corruption trials. I- I'm not clear if there's one trial with three charges or three trials with one charge. I don't think anybody. Uh, but it's, yeah. g- it's going to be going on. What is the impact on Netanyahu's personal popularity? Uh, is he Trump-like and sort of above it all, gets stronger every time they try and take him down? Not anymore. It's begun to it's begin to have some corrosive effects on his popularity. Um, an excellent source of political information in our country is our cab drivers. I take them all the time, and they I've met cab drivers who said they were born Likudniks. Uh, they were they were weaned on liquid milk, if you will, and uh, and they are, can no longer vote for BB because of the corruption. But that doesn't mean they're going to vote left. And what you see is while there may be a drop in the number of people voting for Likud, even after all the wonderful diplomatic coups that Netanyahu has pulled off in recent weeks, uh, there's really not a tremendous bump for him in the polls. The blocks, that right of center and left of center blocks, remain totally, totally deadlocked. Now, now that can't go on, Michael Oren. So what the center cannot hold here, it's got to break. You don't want four, right? You don't want to have four elections. No, you don't want four. But, you know, they've been telling us for years that the status quo with the West Bank couldn't hold either. And here we are, you know, <laughs> more than a half century later. Um, it, it doesn't seem any sign of breaking up. OK, last, and, uh, last question. Are, are there debates? Are there any events that happen? Or is it just a war of Facebook ads and television ad- advertisements and radio talk shows? Or is there ever, like in America, a series of debates that focus and and uh, recalibrate people's thinking? No. And this this election is, is actually distinguished by election fatigue. There are almost no posters. Uh, Netanyahu was crossing the country campaigning. He's on the stump. Uh, there's a move away from new media to actually talking to human beings in the street, but a very, very low-key election, though we are expecting a, uh, an unprecedentedly high turnout once again. Uh, with all that fatigue, people are not giving up at the polls. 
And does the security, I, I, I lied last week, is the security situation stable enough that it will leave the election unimpacted? Uh, for the time being, because we're not in the war in the north, not in the war in the south. There's terror is at a, at a sustainable level. We had one day last week, I think I spoke to you, where we were fighting on three different fronts, uh, in, in, in Syria, in Gaza, and in the West Bank. Uh, that's par for the course here. But it's been relatively quiet, and I stress uh, relatively. That's not the issue. The big issue today in Israel is the blacklist published by the U.N. Uh, Human Rights Council, 112 uh, Israeli companies and foreign companies doing business in Judea and Samaria with Jewish communities. It, it's an implicit boycott. Um, and I ask myself, you know, why does the United States maintain a U.N. headquarters in New York City, which is, is fundamentally anti-Semitic? Um, some very good property there. It could be used for a nice university or a school. Who, who published that? I mean, who is the, what division in the United Nations puts out this garbage? It's the UN Human Rights Commission. Oh, okay. Which, which had, that council has, has condemned Israel more frequently than all other countries in the world combined. More than Syria, more than Russia, more than North Korea. And this is, a, a, it actually, this list actually violates the UN definition of anti-Semitism, which is singling out Israel uh, for condemnation. And it is a boycott. And the United States has anti-boycott laws, including the recent uh, presidential directive. So I ask you, is it, is it consonant with American policy that an organization which is blatantly anti-Semitic has its headquarters uh, in the greatest city in the United States, the biggest in the United States, New York City? It isn't, and it's not going to avoid the attention of Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Robert O'Brien, especially Secretary Pompeo. I would not... I would not be surprised if some action is taken. They're not going to throw the U.N. out, but they could very well defund it. I mean, they really could, Michael Orr, and last comment to you, they really could make it hurt. I, and, I, and I would hope so, and it's been my contacts with the administration over the years to do just that. I was very supportive of the administration's decision to leave that council. You remember that uh, George Bush had withdrawn America's ambassador from the council. Uh, Barack Obama replaced America's. Uh, ambassador to that council. Now uh, Trump then withdrew again. I was very supportive of that. The United States should not. No Western uh, enlightened country should be represented in a fundamentally anti-Semitic organization. Agree. Dr. Michael Oren, we continue to check in with you weekly as we get close to vote number 3.0 in Israel. Hopefully something the center will hold or will move to the right. Thank you, Michael Oren. Good day to you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Albert Moeller for townhall.com. The New York Times ran an article recently that should have our attention. The headline, Belgium acquits three doctors in assisted suicide case. The article tells the story of the first three medical professionals charged under Belgium's euthanasia law. The manslaughter charge came because they had brought about the death of a woman who had not really been qualified as a candidate for euthanasia because at least one member of her family argued she was not incurably ill. Why were the doctors acquitted? Not because of the facts of the case, but rather because they argued that if the doctors were found guilty and imprisoned, it would have a chilling effect upon other physicians who are conducting euthanasia or assisted suicide. The argument evidently won in court, with the court deciding that there would be a chilling effect upon physicians killing people if these three doctors are found criminally guilty of having killed a person wrongly. 
And there, once again, we have a taste of the logic of the culture of death. Sponsored by ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom.